I'm noticing a tactical pattern by this government in terms of bringing people to court, dragging them through court, making them run up legal bills, and then dropping the cases or hoping the court's going to drop them. They've done that in in some of the charges, as you've seen. So now, same kind of concept with this travel mandate in the Peckford, you know, it is not cheap. Like the amount of work that went into those hearings and and JCCF made public, there was a lot of work, a lot of cross-examinations, a lot of important evidence that a judge and the lawyers would want to go over Mm -hmm. in a hearing. And to now drop it at this moment in time and say, "Hey, we, you know, we've done nothing wrong," or the, it's all it's all it's all water under the bridge. No, 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 no. And that's why they're very, you know, JCCF and all the lawyers. They're, they're very eager to have this thing heard. Hello and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Daniel Freyheit, uh, who's been with us before. And uh, Daniel, it's great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. To speak to the freedom community is always a pleasure, especially since my last name, like, as you know, is based, is means freedom. That's right. And uh, absolutely. And and that is fantastic. And speaking of freedom, I tell you, there's been a lot of discussion over the last while about the whole concept of the vaccine mandate or the travel mandates. We've got the case going on in Ottawa, the Honorable Brian Peckford's uh, case, as well as the Honorable Maxine Bernier, who have been before the federal court just a couple of weeks ago, have the case dismissed because of its mootness. And I'm wondering if we shouldn't spend a wee bit of time talking about this entire situation we find ourselves in right now, where the government is calling on the courts to throw out these cases because there's nothing to see here anymore. Everything is moved. What do you think? That's insane. It's insane. (laughs) But, you know, I'm noticing a pattern, a tactical pattern by this government in terms of bringing people to court, dragging them through court, making them run up legal bills and then dropping the cases or hoping the court's going to drop them. They've done that in in some of the charges, as you've seen. Some of the big charges against, uh, I don't know if you're following, Hilly, uh, Hillier, right, was just uh, dismissed. Right. Um, or dropped. So now, same kind of concept with this travel mandate in the Peckford, you know. It is not cheap. Like, the amount of work that went into those hearings and, and JCCF made public all those affidavits. Like, there was a lot of work, a lot of cross-examinations, a lot of important evidence that a judge and the lawyers would want to go over mm-hmm. in a hearing. And to now drop it at this moment in time and say, "Hey, we, you know, we've done nothing wrong," or the, it's all it's all it's all water under the bridge. No, 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 no. And that's why they're very, you know, JCCF and all the lawyers. They're, they're very eager to have this thing heard. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're looking at tens of thousands of pages of evidence in this case. Uh, which has been a real boon for even the journalists who have been reporting on what's been happening with the airlines. I noticed, uh, for example, Air Canada had a real problem with individuals who are claiming religious exemptions to be able to go on flights. And Air Canada was very upfront with the government at the time. This was all behind the scenes. We would not have known it but for this case. But Air Canada was saying to government, look, this is not our bailiwick. We're not going to be dealing with this. We'll handle the medical exemptions, but we don't want to do religious exemptions. We knew a lot of these airlines were kind of caught in the uh, crossfires, right? Mm -hmm. And they had the additional obligation to report all this noncompliance and to really be the government's proxy, enforcement proxies. So it's interesting to hear all, all all this stuff that's now coming to the fore, what's going on behind the scenes with a lot of these exemptions, the religious exemptions, the medical exemptions. Like, I think at the end of the day, when 
you realize that there's a real possibility that hundreds or thousands of religious exemptions that should have been that should have qualified or medical exemptions that you know that could have qualified but didn't you know i've said on my twitter like this you're dealing with potentially one of the largest human rights violations you know in recent history you're talking about all these cases that should have that should have been granted exemptions that weren't i mean it's it's insane i had a person ask me just the other day they said well barry where is the charter in all of this how come the charter hasn't protected us and my response was that if you have a government that is strategic in how it approaches the charter issues so that either they'll violate the charter and knowingly do so or do so in a way that comes to the very edge of violating it. So it's kind of like a like I, I can imagine you know, the government lawyers sitting around a table trying to figure out strategy, how to implement the government's policy. If you have a government that is willing to push the envelope, we're not being protected because they're willing to violate it or, like I say, push the envelope on it. And it's not until we get to the courts that we get a determination on that. Right. And I, I think this is what people don't really realize about the charter and what happens when there is a violation of the charter under Canadian law or, you know, any government actor that violates the charter. At the end of the day, it it's the rights are only valuable to the extent that they're enforced or breaches compensated for. And the court has put a dollar value on charter violations. And it's not, it's, we're not talking big dollars. So in some cases of charter violations, people will get compensated eventually, some dollar amount. It's not a lot. And lawyers don't like taking it on because they're just not worth the trouble. There's a lot of charter violations back in the police roundups back in the day. There was a class action that was started and was settled and people just traded in their charter violation, what they experienced in charter violations for dollars. And it was not a lot. Like you're talking about an afternoon of of wrongful detention of being worth, you know, 10, 15, I don't know, Matt's like, they, they weren't big dollars. Same thing here, like, and again, not everyone's going to be entitled to a charter violation for their religious exemption, because yeah, some people are just trying to game the system. There's no legit religious exemption that they bonafide have. So the court mm-hmm. might not be impressed. But many people, it's, it's all fact specific case by case. So there will be some where the, the denial of by Air Canada or by the government was wrong. And in that case, yeah, they'll, they'll be entitled to charter damages, which again, not huge, but they could be huge. And that's why I've been telling people on my Twitter, document everything. Like if not for compensation, um, then at least so we know what this government has done for mm. the long term. So meaning right. someone who, if they did have, see, I'm trying to think for, for a medical exemption that they were denied, let's say they couldn't get on a flight to visit, to, to, to attend a funeral, they had a legitimate medical exemption. What, what's the cost there? Uh, it's going to come down to that denial, how much that aggravated an existing medical condition, because Mm -hmm. all these things do aggravate existing mental health conditions or or even sometimes physical conditions. All that has to be documented. And, you know, ideally one day this will have um, a more efficient way to be processed than courts because, yeah, the courts are backlogged, Mm -hmm. expensive. So hopefully there'll be, if not this government, then an incumbent government to hold people responsible, but also to compensate people who've been wrongly affected by this. A lot of people need to understand that the charter acts as a buffer between us and the government. So it's a vertical relationship where the charter acts to protect the citizen from the overreach of government. But like you say, if if government is not faithful to the spirit, uh, the courts often talk about charter values, you know, that that you know, the spirit of, of the charter. But if if the government is not uh, willing to say, hey, listen, we've got an obligation here with respect to the charter, uh, then they're willing to push the envelope. But so what we have to recognize is extremely important that those whom we put in power 
are going to be committed to protecting the rights of individuals in this country. And what we have seen so far is that governments, but in the federal as well as the provincial, it seemed to me that they're willing to push that envelope. And so people are like, okay, well, I thought there was a law in here. Why isn't the government upholding the law? But the reality is, it's not until we find out what the courts say, whether or not government actually violated. It's expensive to get there. And uh, in uh, organizations like JCCF, like us with First Freedoms, we're trying to raise funds to help people on these matters. And it takes a lot of effort, a lot of time for the government now to say, hey, let's uh, back off because we have just uh, uh, eliminated the, the vaccine mandate on the travel. Uh, so there's no no case here. So we want to we want to encourage people to keep applying that pressure on the public officials, it seems to me, so that they will indeed be faithful to our charter rights. Well, that's it. I, I think the government, and that's a good way of looking at it. It's, you know, it's it's the, the, as the charter being this buffer between the people and the government, right? But what, what I've noticed now, and I think a lot of criminal lawyers, defense lawyers will have known this for ages, but is that the the crown slash government has has figured out a way to really game the charter in many cases, and that's the concern, as it's part of it almost seems like part of a strategy. Meaning, mm -hmm. yes, we know there's a potential abuse of rights for this uh, situation, but we're willing to just we'll just do the trade off, and that's why unless the courts really start really penalizing the government and issuing kind of like U.S. style uh, damage awards you'll see people start to behave, the people in government and the government uh, institutions start to behave a lot better, make that charter document worth something. And I've even noticed this now uh, in, in some of these where the government lays charges in criminal matters, okay, whether or not they're valid, whether or not the you know, charter rights were, and they'll just, they may even not be able to comply with the Jordan rule, meaning have a trial within two years, whatever it is. Yeah. And they know that, but they'll just run the clock just so they can keep people in the court system for two years and then they'll drop it after the two years. Like we're starting to see that kind of high level strategy and it's just not acceptable. Yeah. Right. It's, it's the process becomes the punishment. Right. Exactly. Right. Even right. though you're, you're, you're not, you're not found guilty. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The process is the punishment. And that's that we've seen that with all the things arrive can, you know, we've seen that with, uh, you know, a lot of the charges in the protests, they threw in charges that they knew wouldn't stick, but you see that a defendant sees that. And, uh, get scared and more likely to settle to terms that they would, you know? Exactly. And and that, that's why I think it's important for the Canadian public to understand what has been going on on here. Is like you said, they're gaming the charter. We have got to push back and say, look, I, I was speaking with a, a pastor, uh, Pulowski, uh, some weeks ago, and and, uh, you know, he uses some very strong language, like, you know, calling people uh, Gestapo and all that kind of stuff. And and he says, Barry, you know the why I do that? Because I'm asking him, I'm like, like, you know, why do you use this inflammatory language? And he says, well, because I'm trying to wake people up and I'm trying to say that government is not your friend. And and I think in Canada, we we have had this sense as a people, as a, almost like an identity marker that, you know, we're for peace, order and good government and we defer to government and, and we don't get upset, you know, when, because we trust that government is good. And I think we have got to unwrap that an awful lot and say, hey, listen, you know what? 
government is not necessarily interested in your own good. I mean, horrible to even think that, as Jordan Peterson would say, that's a horrible conclusion to come to because people are sometimes dispirited by that. But I say, no, let's not be dispirited by it, but let us be awake and say, let's hold government accountable to what's going on here. And and I think it behooves us to do that and to go that extra mile and say, hey, no, that you've gone too far here. That's that's the riddle is how to hold government accountable. I mean, do, they seem to understand the language of dollars. So, you know, financial compensation, a lot of people want more. They, you know, there's a lot of angry folks on the, on the interwebs that want criminal international war crime type stuff. Like, so you get a lot of people with different levels of, you know, how strong they want to go on enforcement or holding government accountable. At the end of the day, it's it really comes down to just this election. You uh, force government out of power, and that's the biggest statement, biggest way to hold them accountable as a voter. So. And, and I think also putting procedures in place that allow greater accountability. Like I, I was amazed with seeing Aaron O'Toole be removed from leadership, for example, outside of an election, and it was done so quickly. And I think those kinds of measures that provide greater accountability is something that we've got to keep before the Canadian people say, hey, look, we do not want, obviously, we do not want our country to even think about the idea or people to think about the concept that we have the use of violence as a legitimate means of settling political scores here in this country. And that's why it's so important to keep all of these institutions accountable. That's that's a good way of framing it. It's at the end of the day, this is uh, all these documents in the, in the interest of peace, order and good government. Mm-hmm. And and it's important that they that's right, that they be respected because, yeah, obviously the, the last thing anybody wants is the kind of civil and, you know, any kind of civil unrest that you see in other uh, other countries. So yeah. and I think it's each of us. We have that responsibility. Now, what's your take on this situation with the Peckford and Bernier cases? Uh, uh, where do we go from there? It would have to be appealed. Right. And mm-hmm. so you're going to it's almost like you're going down this side path. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what are your thoughts on 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 this public inquiry? I know Brian Peckford, for example, has come out with all guns blazing, saying that this is a, a public inquiry that has a lot of issues right at the, the starting gate because the government gets to frame the questions. Government is, in essence, uh, investigating itself, even though, of course, we do have a justice who is heading up the commission, a former justice of the Ontario Court of Appeal. What are your thoughts on, on what we hope to see or expect to see? I'm hopeful that a lot of information is going to come out one way or the other, regardless of how it's framed in terms of the surrounding circumstances about hearing different voices. There's no question you have two competing narratives here. One being, you know, the people of Ottawa who, were, who felt very threatened and very at risk for the protests that were going on. And so you'll hear from them. And I'm very interested to see, to see that evidence and what led to the emergency declaration of the emergency. The government keeps on, you know, referencing the blockades, the blockades. This had like it had nothing to do with the blockades at the at the point when the emergency act was invoked. Right. So I think their their credibility. Again, I I keep thinking different issues would hit this federal government's credibility, but they just seem to keep on their arms in their coalition and and plowing through. You know, which is you know. Kudos to them. It shows to the power of solidarity. But I think as more information comes out on, on the other side, meaning all the costs associated with implementing the Emergency Act, I don't think it was thought through that extensively. 
we're all kind of just in shell shock, right? And yeah. we're still kind of reeling. I don't think people at the time, re- like even lawyers who were there on site, like I had colleagues who were there in Ottawa, they were consulting with me and vice versa. And I'm like, I tried, I was trying to think of a way, can I go to Ottawa? I'm like, a, I'm a lawyer. I guess I, I lawyers have a right to go there. Are they exclu-? Like you're dealing with like questions that had never been asked before. Like are lawyers suddenly barred from being present? And it's like, so I want to get my voice in into, um, as to what I saw uh, with the invocation of the act, my hope and my expectation is that as people see, it wasn't appropriate. First of all, it wasn't appropriate. There was no, the circumstances didn't call for it. No, that's right. And that, you know, no matter, and I've, again, I speak to a lot of people in Ottawa, like anyone who will let me ask them questions, I'll talk to you. you know? <laughs> I speak to folks, you know, sometimes call centers, you know, Rogers, Rogers or whatever. I'm like, where's you, where are you guys? I'm like in Ottawa. I'm like, Oh, were you, what were your thoughts of the, and like everyone says the same thing, like it was an inconvenience. It was loud. Did they feel like it was a terrorist lockdown? No, nobody yeah. I thought to, I right. spoke, thought that. And so um, I'm hoping all that will come out in this commission. As much as people don't want to hear it, this was not a, a mass convoy of, of, ter- of terrorists that were going to overthrow the government. They had no. very peaceful and very Canadian means of asking for a sit down and a negotiation. So. I, I was uh, myself up there for three days and I was just amazed watching the hockey game on the street, watching, uh, you know, seeing the bouncy castle, even seeing uh, they, they they even brought what you would use for a lawn bowling was set up, you know, for the kids to play with. I mean, it was fascinating. The whole experience I find has been a defining moment in Canada, even though the government cracked down hard. The prime minister kept the travel mandates. He kept the vaccine mandates. He was going to show them kind of thing. But yet, I think in many ways, it became ropes of sand because people have become very much disillusioned with the using a hammer to kill a a gnat was just a little bit over the top. Not a little bit very much over the top <laughs> right and it's it's almost it's kind of forced people to align themselves or distance themselves with this method of governing and mm. you start to see you know some true colors here who's like yeah hammer's about right and you know from people you'd be shocked to hear that from right i often ask myself like if if the shoe is on the other foot meaning like if you know if if your political agenda was being mm. threatened to the same extent that the convoy uh, protesters were threatening, like, would we be sticking up for the other the side as much as we are for the side that you're on? Like, I don't know. At yeah. the end of the day, it's it's hard to maintain that balance. And, and what what exactly, where do you draw the line? We all acknowledge that some in some cases, you know, charter violations are going to have to be limited subject to a free and democratic society. And it's a question of defining what that free and democratic society is. Before we came on the show, you were talking about other issues that, that people have been facing with respect to the vaccines. And I'm wondering if you want to just share a wee bit about what you've been tweeting about the last little while. My, my big thing is on understanding and getting accurate picture of vaccine injuries. And I don't know where this, where your stream is broadcast because, you know, it's evolved over the past six to 10 months. But mm. what I can talk about vaccine injury, I'll try to be as uncontentious as uncensorable as possible. <laughs> but there was a vaccine injury support program that 10 months ago, many people didn't know about. It was it was wasn't advertised. And, you know, it wasn't really discussed. And or, you know, people didn't even want to talk about it, because the whole agenda was to get people vaccinated. But now it's been a while and people have started to use it, uh, or trying to use it more. What we're seeing is that you know, whether or not the vaccine injuries are legit or not, what we're seeing is that the the program that was set up uh, and that was induced people to get 
vaccinated is in my in my view failing in various regards because it's just it's taking too long it's too complicated and people that have have been injured within a really close proximity to getting vaccinated yeah you can't it's impossible to 100 110% proven injuries connected to the vaccine but mm. you start to notice a pattern and so i, I think there, there there's some issues in terms of getting these uh people you know uh Helping people out who've been injured by vaccines, a lot of that has to do with how the program was set up. And so, yeah, I'm basically in the process now of, yeah, a lot of people are reaching out to me on Twitter, uh, just sharing their stories. And I've actually, I've helped a, a couple of individuals navigate the system and understand how the process works. So what kind of numbers are we looking at? Like I know in the United States, they have the VAERS program that lets everyone know, but do, do we have anything similar in Canada? And there is a federal system. I think it's the Canada Canadian Adverse Event Reporting System. So it's like similarly named and it, it connects to Health Canada and, they, and they're very transparent about it. I think they've got 10,300 serious injuries reported at last check. And again, not all of them, these are just reported. So there's no causal connection, but those are reported. So what I'm noticing is that a lot of, a lot of folks haven't actually been able to report their injuries for whatever reason, either their healthcare provider still requires additional documentation, or in some cases, just people have died. And for those claims, it's like, I think the federal program uh, indicates around 327 deaths that are temporally connected to the vaccine, but not proven. That system is only re as reliable as the information that gets fed into it. It's going to be years before we know with certainty, and maybe never, about the safety and you know e efficacy we, we can already are already getting good intel on. But the the safety is going to take years, and and at that, it's only going to be as good as the will and the desire to keep an open mind and process all these claims. Now, what about the medical associations? My sense is that they're very much with the official narrative of the government on all of this. But what's your sense? I, I agree. I think a lot of them, I mean, in a way, we all have this massive conflict of interest, right? Because, yeah, a lot of the medical associations, the, a lot of the, the doctors there were very pro-vaccine, which itself isn't isn't necessarily an issue, but it's it's. I think I think the issue is more of the mandates. I think the best available evidence may at one point or various points suggested, yeah, based on what we know about the vaccines, we recommend them. Here are the risks. Dot dot dot. Right. Where you get to the conflict is that if healthcare providers weren't fully informing patients of the risks, then the question is, are they really going to be able to best you know self reflect? And so yeah, a lot of the medical associations, I'm not sure where they landed. I think most of them at least the doctors I know, it's like the, the goal is just to get to keep people out of the emergency rooms and the long-term consequences of the vaccine. We, we're pretty confident that everything will be fine. But main thing is we want to keep people out of emergency rooms. We don't want to have to like make life and death decisions about who's going to get emerged. So they basically encouraged people to get vaccinated, not really so mindful of the injuries or not really caring about that aspect because there's always trade-offs and Overall, as they always say on all the websites, overall, the risk, the benefits exceed the risks. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, now, but we're still processing the information about the risk, the cost. So, you know, now it's, uh, you know, it's time to true up on, on this stuff. This true up, yeah, it might make look a lot of doctors or a lot of these associations kind of put them under the watchful eye of the public and it may make some people uncomfortable. I've talked to some physicians, uh, friends of mine, who ultimately decided they They'd rather retire than continue on in the profession, which I think is a tremendous uh, cost when we're not recognizing the conscience rights of physicians on a lot of these issues. But one of the things they point out to me is the connections between pharma and the medical profession. 
and that therein lies the conflict of interest. I don't know if you have any information on that, trying to figure out, okay, so what would be the connecting of the dots, if any, uh, that, that you may have uh, come across? Well, a lot of people on, uh, on the Twitters, they do, um, they do point out this conflict. Um, how exactly the, you know, it percolates, I'm trying to still wrap my head around how the funding gets sloshed around because it's very tricky. It's difficult to see how it gets netted out. There's this part of me that's like this idealist. It's like, uh, I don't really believe that a doctor can be bribed by a big pharma. They, they might be motivated to push for certain things, but I, I feel like most of them will uphold their oath. That mm. being the case, there are very gray areas that are medically uncertain. And does a medical professional, when the unknowns are can go either way, are they more likely to be inclined to, to lean with where the dollars are? Then yeah, maybe. I, I don't know exactly how, how all that works in terms of the funding. I'm trying to put my head around. I know SickKids, I believe, was receiving federal funding to run a, a COVID uh, information hotline. Again, I don't think individual doctors within that setting you know, were compromised. I think they're giving their candid recommendations. But I don't know many doctors, if any, that get on the record say we, we support forcing like mandates, like we're denying services to those who don't want to get like vaccinated. I don't, I know very few practicing physicians who could be encouraged to make those kind of statements, even by big pharma. You raised another interesting point. There were some, um, I don't know what kind of money flowed to medical associations or to physicians from the federal government, government, for example, or to assist with getting the information out there. You know, the fees that Health Canada charges to big pharma to get their products licensed, okay? Um, mm -hmm. That's the inflow. And then that goes back to big pharma because they have to pay, the government then has to pay for the vaccines. And then, you know, you have the vaccine injury support program that gets funded by Public Health Agency of Canada slash Health Canada. I'm suspecting that somewhere or other, the big Pfizer's and Moderna have to have to indirectly or find some way to fund those payments. So it, it's it's kind of dizzying. I, we, we need somebody <laughs> to go in there and just get an accurate assessment of how. And it, I, I suspect over time, it'll it'll kind of it'll all come out. But it's it's slow. And at the end of the day, what's who cares? At, at the end of these long, you're not forcing anyone to take a vaccine that they don't want to take. I don't really mm -hmm. care. But, the you know, the funding one way or the other. Mm hmm. It's irrelevant. Um, I, I mean, again, unless there's judgment that being seriously impaired by by funding, but I, I don't know that the mere receipt of nominal amounts can persuade a good most good doctors. But I don't know. Yeah. Uh, since our last chat, any anything else uh, comes to mind as uh, what you see on the horizon here as we go forward? What What recently blew my mind, and I've taken to Twitter on this, was I was not aware that private security was enforcing the arrive can app use. I think this was a, a bit of a revelation for some of my followers. There was a story written up on it. I forget which uh, one of the, West, I think it was Western Standard wrote an article on it. This was quite a uh, an eye-opener for me that the government had hired private security to basically ensure that people were staying in their home for yeah. 14 days if they refused to download the ArriveCan app. What is it about the fact that the government is hiring private security? Just the, the extent to which the government is um, carrying out its threat, as it were? <laughs> 
first of all, that it's, it's an overlap between the police function. There's an assumption in Canada that public policing is done by local police services or right. provincial or RCMP. This indirect method was not really well known the extent to which these private security companies were enforcing what should be called a home detention. And again, not because people were sick or because people were exhibiting symptoms, but just because they had refused to download an app disclosing their vaccination status at a time when no other country in the world was doing that as a health prevention method. That's a very good point. And then we, we don't even know how effective this all of these government measures were. They probably were not very effective. But again, that's something that, you know, would have to be studied and disclosed mm-hmm. and not subject to cabinet confidence. I, I think it's it's important that people know who's enforcing the laws in this country. And if if it is private security, then Canadians should know. We've got the government saying that even when the vaccine mandate was going to be lifted, whether, you know, you're going to require quarantine when you come in for the unvaccinated, the government maintained, absolutely, the Arrive Can was going to be here forever. Now it's not. What changed? (laughs) The brand might be rebranded. So (laughs) a lot of people on my Twitter posted these initials, KTDI. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's called the Known Traveler Digital Identity. And it was something that was floated in 2018, quite publicly by Transport Canada. And so it's just a way, and off the cuff, it kind of seems like a good idea to an innocent law-abiding citizen such as myself that, you know, to streamline international travel, sure, sign sign me up. Yeah, so Um, don't, don't have to be in the lineups all the time. Exactly. And to an extent, we're, we're okay with it. Like, you know, when you go to some other countries, you know, um, I don't know how they do it in the States, but they take, like, they take pictures of my face. They take my iris scan. I don't know, with thumbprints. They like, they take a lot of, met, you know, biometrics from travelers. And I, I think mm-hmm. UK does it as well. So, you know, the public was advised in 2018 of this technology and this, you know, this piloting this concept. And, you know, now that a bit more information is known about it, you know, maybe people will vote differently. But the idea was that if they're going to float the technology, do it with the people's consent and let them, you know, let them sign up and do a pilot, a beta, whatever. But it seems like with the way they did this was using a can, <laughs> like that was the, the KTDI that everyone was conspiratorially posting on my feeds. And I'm like, were they really, is that really how they, you know, floated this, this, uh, this technology down the pipes by doing it under the ruse of, of a health requirement and then enforcing it by threatening people at the border with private security. I mean, you could have just gotten to people sign up for it voluntarily. You didn't have to do it like that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, the, the, the reality is, is that we, uh, like a lot of times, of course, I like Professor Bruce Party's term. He's, he calls them perceptive pundits. Those who have been labeled as conspiracy theorists and who then subsequently have their theory come into being. You look at all of this, and and when governments start saying, oh, you know, this is a, a conspiracy, you know. Uh, I, I just saw Leslin Lewis yesterday, I think it was, sent out a tweet about a hundred and was it a hundred and three or hundred and five million dollar contract between the Canadian government and WEF something to do with digital ID or something. So Leslin says, well, it's not no longer a conspiracy theory now. Um, and here, um, um, uh, Christian Freeland apparently 
some months back was said, oh, you know, this is all conspiracy theory. And, and uh, so Leslin Lewis was connecting the dots there. I don't get what the accusation, they, they even accused, I forget who the MP was. It was a small, uh, it was a lesser known MP who asked the question and was shot down as a conspiracy theorist. I mean, maybe it's a matter of just narrowing down the question. So meaning, okay, maybe it's a conspiracy. Let's just answer that more basic question. Okay. We know that Chris, uh, Christian Friedland is on the board of trustees for WF. That's on the WF website. That's not a conspiracy. We yeah. know that board meetings require notes and minutes, usually and res- they, they make resolutions and they have access. So, so can we at least have that? And if they refuse to provide that, then you're not helping, you know, they're not helping the conspiracy, you know, <laughs> like, like why should they let our imaginations run loose? What's going on in those board meetings? It could be nothing. It could be a big nothing burger. But yeah. in the meantime, yeah, if information is now coming out that WF is getting all kinds of money. And by the way, I didn't, wasn't able to confirm that that, that $100 million plus actually went to WEF. It okay. seemed to have went to international partners, but could very well have gone to WEF. We don't know. Or, um, or may, maybe it was just the WEF being the agency that brought everyone together. And then it went to different uh, organizations. Well, and that's that's why that's what a trustee does. A trustee holds money and then distributes it according to how the trustee for the beneficiaries. But we don't know any of this. We're left to make up conspiracy theories. It's like, you know what, Madam Freeland, if you're listening, you know, just show us the minute book. That's all we want to see. Show us those minutes, and we'll be happy. We'll walk on our merry way. Yeah, and then you have to wonder whether or not should Canada have its. Minister of Finance being on any other major international body that would have any influence whatsoever on the running of our own country. So, okay, this is another can of worms we could talk about because the question there, right, is what are the rules on MPs holding outside competing interests? Mm. There's, it's not illegal because there's no cr- there's no crime necessarily. No. It's really comes down to Senate rules. And, you know, I talked to my American colleague about this. It's like, it comes down to, to just the policies and yeah, basically Senate rules, what they're allowed to do outside of their MP role. Canada was ranked as very high in terms of lack of corruption because on that, I forget what it was, the US International Report on Corruption. But if you look at the definition of corruption, it's having private interests. Like, so meaning they're not personally mm-hmm. profiting in private companies. And that, that very, very well be true. But there may be indirect ways that the, the corruption that a lot of Canadians, I think, are are speaking out against is not necessarily that their the MPs are personally making tons of money with outside interest, but that they have other benefits that they're receiving, whether it's some kind of status role at the WEF. Um, the idea is that, yes, we have to have policies transparently, Senate rules or whatever it is, cabinet rules on this stuff, because we just there's too much that's going on there that we don't know about, that's, that they're not being transparent about. And it, yeah, it's, it's fueling needless conspiracy theories when all it would take is just a bit a bit of transparency to pop that bubble. But I guess what happens is that they are concerned that if they were to be transparent, then their own pet project, whatever that pet project is, may not get the light of day. You know, over and over, we've seen throughout history that when people try to hide things or to lie about things, they ought to have a very good memory because lying always tends to trip people up or lack of transparency trips people up. So it's not in our best interest to be involved in anything that would thwart open debate in Canada. And, and especially when they're, you know, when they're in their in, in their capacity as an MP, you know, or a cabinet member benefiting from that, the prestige and the responsibilities of that role crossing over into the WF. Yeah, for sure. Daniel, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, is there any final thoughts that come to mind as we look to the horizon? And as I continue to say, it's about all about documentation. People got to document, document, document. That includes 
documenting all the damage that this insane period of time is having on everyone's life, whether it's medical, financial. Um, be mindful of the two-year statutory uh, statutory limit for bringing claims, uh, whatever those claims happen to be. And yeah, write, write to your MPs on a daily basis. Email, they have email addresses and they, and they read them. They have assistants that read them. And I think all of this pressure is starting to mount because I'm hearing from, M- you know, in the MPs within the, even the Liberal Party, like they're getting, they're getting information from their constituents that all is not well. And that whether it's, you know, issues at the passport office or other government services that are failing, you know, never leaving aside all the human rights issues from some of these policies, they're getting wind of people's dissatisfaction and democracy appears to still be working in that regard. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much for being with us again. And I want to thank you for watching and uh, being part of this discussion. And then we encourage you to uh, ensure that you keep holding government accountable. And that's going to be up to all of us to do that. And as we point out at each program, you may not agree with the opinions of our guests or of myself, but that's okay because we want to continue the dialogue, an open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca